The Brooklyn Vegan Show is a podcast about music brought to you by the music blog and online record store Brooklyn Vegan. Make sure to subscribe to hear all of our upcoming episodes featuring interviews with musicians and more, and find us 24-7 at brooklynvegan.com, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Hey, welcome to the new episode of the Brooklyn Vegan Show. I'm BV editor Andrew Sacker, and today's episode is an interview with author Chris Payne, who just put out his new book, Where Are Your Boys Tonight? The Oral History of Emo's Mainstream Explosion, 1999 to 2008. Chris is someone I've communicated with here and there over the years on Twitter and other social media, but this was really the first time I got to sit down with him and talk at length, and it was an awesome, awesome conversation. Uh, Before this book, Chris was a staff writer at Billboard for many years. He's also written for Alt Press, Stereo Gum, and more. And he grew up in New Jersey as the emo explosion was happening all around him. And uh, he gets into how both that upbringing and his his career as a writer led to him putting out this awesome book. Uh, I highly recommend reading the book if you haven't, if you care at all about emo, especially its popular era in the 2000s. This really covers so much from the really visible stuff like Fall Out Boy and My Chemical Romance to underrated things like The Last Silent Majority Show on Long Island. It's a really, really cool book, and I I just I really recommend it to fans of this style of music. Chris talks a lot about the book throughout this conversation, and we also just kind of shoot the breeze about the emo explosion. Chris has so many interesting things to say, so much interesting perspective on this era, both from living through it and learning so much more about the depths of it while conducting the many, many interviews that he conducted for this book. Uh, it's, it's, all, it's all really cool stuff, and you know, I was really honored to have Chris on the show. Before we get to that chat, just a quick mention that listeners of the Brooklyn Vegan Podcast can get 30% off of their first year's membership at DistroKid by signing up at distrokid.com slash VIP slash Brooklyn Vegan. That link's also included in the description of this episode, and you can click directly from there. If you're unfamiliar with DistroKid, it's an awesome service for musicians that allows you to easily upload your music to all major streaming platforms, including Spotify, Apple Music, and more. DistroKid allows you to do automatic revenue splits so collaborators and co-writers can get paid too. It provides you with an artist page that links to your music on all streaming services. It allows you to add lyrics, credits, and liner notes, and more. Again, get 30% off by signing up at distrokid.com VIP slash Brooklyn Vegan. And now my chat with Chris Payne. What's up, Chris? How are you doing? Good. Um, just did a bunch of radio interviews like one after another this morning which is kind of different i've never done that before like like for like just a station in minneapolis and like a rock station in like like north carolina just pretty like each one was like six minutes long and these like radio guys just like going through questions real fast and pretty fun pretty uh different thing for me i think podcasts are a lot more my speed but that was cool yeah no that makes sense i've uh i have no experience with radio but uh but you know i mean we're tapping back into third wave emo so you got to take it back to radio right oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> um well i'm excited to chat i've uh, got my bleed american shirt on oh shit judge um, <laughs> freshly purchased at a Jason fest. Oh, sick. Yeah. I was, in, I was there and I saw people wearing that and I thought it was sick, but then I saw the merch lines and I was like, Oh man, 
It was insane. Uh, I don't know why I decided it was worth it, but um, the group I was with was like, let's just all do it together. And I was like, all right, fair enough. Yeah, if you're going to do it in a group, at least you yeah. have people to talk to. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, we're chatting about your new book, uh, Where Are Your Boys Tonight? The Oral History of Emo's Mainstream Explosion, 1999 to 2008. So can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background as both an emo lover and a music journalist, and how you came to write a book on emo? Yeah, so it really starts with uh, where I grew up. I grew up in a town called Colonia in New Jersey, kind of on the north side. And this scene was just like huge where I grew up. So I went to high school between 02 and 06. So by this point, bands like Save Today and Thursday had kind of already made their mark. So shit was popping. It wasn't like this still like on the come up. It was looking back, it was such a mainstream version of punk rock. Like I, it kind of was weird to me at the time because I had some sense of like what came before. But now thinking back, like how... I never, I, like, like vinyl like is obviously so big now, but I never really saw vinyl being sold at shows. And I, did, I didn't really know anyone who did zines, but like all my friends were really into writing about shows they went to on like Zanga or like obviously MySpace. So it was, it was kind of weird growing up in a place where it, it, it was, it was going to these like hole in the wall venues like Hamilton Street Cafe and Bloomfield Avenue Cafe in Jersey and like Starland Ballroom was obviously a staple but it was also like blowing up and that's what I tried to capture in the book because also going back so I didn't play in a band myself but there were so many bands back then and my good buddy his name's Greg Scalera he played in a band called Moraine who kind of sounded like Motion City Soundtrack and the Get Up Kids. My, he played synth in this band. And they were a staple in the local scene from like, like 05 through 07. And they would open for like legit touring bands when they came through. And like I saw my buddy opening for Gym Class Heroes in Paramore when I was uh, like a senior in high school. Like that's crazy. And he got to be buds with Haley back then. Like we'd all be, me and my friends would be playing uh, like Guitar Hero in someone's living room. And Greg would just be like on the phone chatting with Haley about tour or whatever. Like such crazy stuff thinking back, but like seeing your friends do stuff like that, it's pretty wild. And it was a lot of what just made me think like, oh, someone like me could do this thing. So how did you first start to write about music? So it started at this newspaper called the Home News Tribune, uh, which is based out of New Brunswick. They had a weekly teen page that like high schoolers wrote for. It was called Teen Scene, which is funny to think about now. And I started off there because I was always like interested in like writing and journalism. Like I wrote for the middle school paper, but that was kind of just like playtime. And uh so at first I was writing just general interest stuff. Like I wrote a thing about taking your driver's test. Uh, and I pitched and wrote a story on MySpace when it was first coming up in 2004. And I was getting really into this music. 
and I basically became like the music reviews guy for this uh, for this teen section, teen scene at the Home News Tribune. And uh, that led to college radio. I was music director at TCNJ from 08 to 2010 and did a lot of writing for the campus newspapers there for the uh, station WTSR, shout out to them. Did a lot of writing for their blog and uh, that fortuitously led to interning at Billboard and then Pitchfork after I graduated, um, which is pretty lucky because again, like, I just feel so closely tied to Jersey. And a lot of it is because like those were unpaid internships back then. And I never would have been able to do that if I didn't live so close to the city. Like my, my parents live like a 45 minute train ride from the city. So I would just like pack a lunch and take the train in. And that like never would have happened if I lived anywhere else. So I was just like uh, interning first billboard, then pitchfork, uh then briefly i had this like random paid job in the city doing logging for bravo shows uh funny thing that was on my resume for a bit and then billboard hired me as an editorial assistant in 2013 which is sick i finally got to move to the city this was kind of like in my phase of really hiding still a lot of like my emo and post-hardcore beginnings uh probably something that you can sympathize with to some extent. I don't think there was like, now that I think about it, I don't think there was any real reason to be like afraid, but I just kind of caught a drift of like, you know, what's, if you want to like get a job at one of these places, you know, indie rocks, the way to go. But also I was like really passionate about that stuff. And like, and then around like, 28 2008 2009 when i was doing the radio station i was feeling a little old for a lot of like the the really you know neon pop punk stuff and like the myspace metalcore that was kind of like the next version of the scene so i was you know going through my animal collective and like grizzly bear and m83 phase you know getting into rap against a pop and it was around i'd say 2013 when i started billboard when Fallout Boy and Paramore both put out big albums. You know, Fallout Boy was Save Rock and Roll. Paramore self-titled with, you know, Ain't It Fun, Still Into You. Best Paramore album, in my opinion. So I got to build relationships with those bands, interview them, and then started warming up to like where the genre was in 2013, 2014. I was definitely a few years late to the whole emo revival thing, but uh, I remember uh, Turnover's album, Peripheral Vision, uh, I premiered that one. and actually went back to this story a couple years ago when I was seeing, like, I guess it was last, or that one was 2014, right? I think it was 2015. So the, the uh, tenure hasn't even happened yeah, yet. Right. But I went, back, I went back to it for some reason. I was like, oh, cool. I interviewed Turnover for that and premiered that. That's pretty cool. So... Billboard then was when I started to get like get back into where the genre was at in the mid 2010s, get into some new bands, and also just interview a lot of these uh, 2000s bands. Like, like I said, Fallout Boy, Paramore, Brendan Urie, Panic at the Disco, and uh, there were two oral histories I did for Billboard that I really enjoyed that got a really good response. One of them was about a fever you can't sweat out. The first Panic at the Disco album for the ten year anniversary, 
And the other was about the 2005 Warp Tour when Fall Out Boy and MCR were on it. By far the biggest year for Warp Tour, biggest attendance. That piece was super fun to write. So I got laid off from Billboard in March of 2020, early in the pandemic, a bunch of other people at Billboard. So I was like, it's a wild day. I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Uh, it's 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 funny because like, you're also, you're, you're, it's it's so it's such a like a harrowing day but also when you get laid off there's just like all this at attention you're getting like people all these people reconnecting with you and tweeting at you and saying nice things so you i my, my head was in a million different places and then the day after i got laid off i got this email <laughs> and the subject headline is pete wentz and it was just this email saying like hey man like it was just like words of encouragement and i was like is this really is because we we had interviewed a lot but i had never spoken to him in email or anything so i was like is someone fucking with me maybe like what is this so gabe supporta i knew pretty well so i just texted him and it was like gabe like is this really pete wentz is this his email and he's like well read me the email and he's like yeah that's that's pete so i was like sick and said thanks pete we got to talking and that turned into the first ask for an interview for my book, which I kind of wanted to write for a long time, but couldn't really do when I was staff at Billboard. So that became the uh, the focus of my time during uh, lockdown, just lots of Zoom conversations with emo men. <laughs> Not just men, but you know, this era is a lot of men. Long yeah. conversations with emo dads. That's what it was. And uh, that's basically how we got to where we are now. <laughs> <laughs> wow. No, I mean, that's, that's a pretty like, great way to spend a pandemic and also to come out of like getting laid off. I mean, yeah, it's like, I'm really fortunate. It turned out that way. Cause I hate to like, you know, there's all these like hustle stories about, you know, that about getting laid off. And, you know, there were all these like corny tweets going on then about like, Oh, you know, Shakespeare wrote blah, blah, blah. When like he was in, I don't know, there, there was, mm -hmm. there were tweets like that. So, you know, never want to make it, uh, never want to spin it that way, which I've been being careful to in these interviews. Uh, but, um, yeah, it was a cool time. Well, <laughs> speaking of being careful in interviews, I don't think I want to, call it, I think I want to call it cool time, but, uh, there was a lot of kindness for sure that I felt. And, you know, I think a lot of people were very understanding of people like myself who had lost their jobs and were willing to give a little bit of their time to, to help out. And a lot of these people were not on tour. None of them were on tour. So just a matter of time and place and following your passions, I guess, because <laughs> there wasn't much else to do that. And like, binge watching the Sopranos and Gilmore girls. That was about it. Two other really good things to do with a lot of extra time at home. <laughs> um, I will say just to go back to one of the things you said, I mean, I can fully relate to entering this world of music journalism and being like, okay, I have this emo past that I'm not supposed to talk about yet. Or like, um, and obviously that changed over time and like, it, but like, you know, like, yeah, it, it it was definitely the vibe back then, like, it you know, entering 
the world of just the cool kid critic club, you felt like you were supposed to hate this stuff. And I mean, and that comes up in your book too. I mean, with like how much Pitchfork like was responsible for either trashing these bands or just pretending they didn't exist. Um, and that was so influential. So I like, I, I mean, I'm sure you felt similarly, but it took me a while. It's, and also like it, it wasn't just overnight. Like it'd be like, okay, I feel like now I can write about, I don't know, like, like a, an easier entry band might've been like me without you. Like that, they're kind of indie rock. Like we could talk about them now, but like to get from that to like taking back Sunday and to get from that to like my cameras, like it, it was, you know, like each one almost felt like a new hurdle of like, are the commenters going to hate me? You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it felt like there were certain bands from the era of my book, only a select few me without you being one of them that were always acceptable. I feel, I mean, not to everyone, but you know, I feel like Thursday and Jimmy Eat World were two of those where like you could talk about them in, you know, 2009 to someone who was really into, you know, the culture. And maybe there was like a little laugh, but it's like, no one is going to shit on clarity or like who is going to shit on like full collapse. But at that time, I mean, pretty hard to find someone who's going to come to bat for like motion city soundtrack or under oath, you know, but I think it's just one of those things where people get older and the people who take over the jobs in writing or the jobs booking venues or the jobs doing whatever else in the industry, they just become kids who were super passionate when they were 16 and people who were passionate about music in that era. So many of them were into this kind of music because for so many different reasons, emo, I think in just every era of the, the genre, it's just attracts super, super obsessive, passionate people. And I say that in the best way, because like, I'm one of them. <laughs> yeah. And I think like, for many of us, like, it was the easiest introduction to underground music. Sure. Like, I mean, like Full Collapse was one of my first records that wasn't like Blink-182 level popular. Um, and from there, it was pretty quick to get to like, you know, a 90s screamo record or like and then from there maybe you're on to like an 80s hardcore record like it just it was like the quickest way to find everything that was outside of like you know the mainstream but it also had a foot in the mainstream and so it was like i think it just led a lot of people down the path that like you know finding that kind of music yeah i mean you've got your bleed american shirt on i mean i feel so so like lucky that they, they were the, the band that started it all for me. Like the, that was the first album I ever bought with my own money. And I basically went from zero to 100 with music in general. Like before that, I was just a kid who downloaded songs off LimeWire or Napster that I heard on the radio. And then it was like, oh, this album, this, there's really good songs on it besides the singles. Like, oh, what a concept, <laughs> you know? Uh, turns out not every album the the not radio songs are as good turns out but jimmy world is such the connective tissue of this going back to the 90s going back to you know the first and second wave bands that they were influenced by 
you know, you can't even call them a Midwest emo band because they're from like Arizona, but West emo bands. And, you know, they also wound up touring with Paramore and playing important shows of My Chemical Romance. So they are so much of them and Thursday. I think, I think those two bands will come back to a lot for this because they very much feel like the connective tissue between you know, underground and the music industry and pop and DIY. And for building a narrative that brings all of that together, I needed to have voices like that. Yeah, I agree. And I'm curious how you felt, but like Bleed American was one of my first CDs too, actually before Full Collapse, but I didn't know they were an emo band. Like, cause they were, the middle was so big and they toured around that time with Blink and Green Day. And so I was like, they're a pop punk band and I hadn't heard Clarity or Static Prevails. It was really finding like Full Collapse and Tell All Your Friends that I started to introduce myself to the word emo. And then when somebody was like, Jimmy World is emo, I was like, that sounds nothing like Full Collapse and Tell All Your Friends. And then of course, hearing Clarity and Static Prevails put it into perspective and learning about, you know, Midwest emo. But did, when you first got Bleed American, like, did you know you were listening to emo? Yeah, because <laughs> I remember, so this this was definitely the era of the iTunes music store. But because me and like the whole family, we shared a computer and my dad was like the main music guy. And instead of iTunes, he used Real Player, which... People probably don't even know what that is now, but that was like a big media player back in the early 2000s. And in the real player music store, every band would come up with a genre next to them. And Jimmy, it, like, it, it was like automated when you played one of their songs from your library. And Jimmy World just came up as the genre emo. And I was like, oh, sick. Because I remember like, I was just starting to be friends with these kids in my high school. Um, actually, a bunch of kids who... um still friends with today, uh, a lot of them, I remember sitting behind them in a creative writing class and they were talking about emo and like what it was and kind of arguing, not really arguing, but like debating what it was. So right away I was like, oh, it's this like interesting thing. And there's all this like debate and like, and like hot takes and like, oh, is this an emo band? It's like, oh, does yellow card count as emo or is good Charlotte emo? Oh, dashboard. That's definitely like, they were saying this like back then. So right away I was like, and they were mostly older kids. So I was very intrigued. So right away I was like, Oh, and it's like short for emotional. That sounds interesting. Right away. I was like, Oh, it's this like interesting thing that like the cool older kids are talking about. So when I saw Jimmy world was just when I was being told they were an emo band, I was like, Oh, sick. That's awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, now you bring it up, I have to ask, I mean, one of the hardest things to do, especially if you're putting out a book about emo is define emo. Um, how do you define emo? So God, <laughs> it's changed a lot over the years. Um, for me, approaching this book, I really used hardcore as a guide and I would say kind of like a one degree of separation from hardcore because you know a band like panic at the disco didn't exactly come from hardcore but they came from pete wentz and pete wentz whether people know it or not is hardcore as fuck and also side note a funny thing they used to do at shows every once in a while brandon yuri would do this bit called positive hardcore where 
him in the band like right before or like during the encore like do you know what i'm talking about no i've never heard about this okay this was this was like in the 2010s too this was like oh, wow. not even really where brandon yuri after doing like you know some song off of vices and virtues would just have his band play you know what sounded like i don't know like a comeback kid song and just start <laughs> screaming and it was kind of like the like kind of like poking fun at it, but also you could tell he knew what was up. Like, so in a funny way, even panic. So to, to get back to answering your question, which I could go on and on about for a long time, it was adjacency to hardcore. Whether it was like oh, straight up, this band was in the hardcore scene, or maybe they had a member who was in a hardcore band before they did their emo pop band. And later on, as you get into like the emo rap years of the 2010s, like Lil Peep is one who I really highlight in the book. Things get a little bit more uh, indirect with influence and like, you know, Lil Peep didn't exactly come up like in the hardcore scene. Like he came up in a lot of ways from the internet. But when you look at him like rapping over mineral samples and what a lot of his influences were and how much he loved MCR, it's like, yeah, that fits too. Yeah, like, I mean, someone like Peep, maybe didn't come from hardcore, but like his influences are like firmly emo. So it's like, I feel like emo can influence emo, right? Like, yeah, totally. And honestly, like, and I think we all have to be kind of open with this stuff and reappraising things. Cause I remember when he started not really getting it and not being into it and kind of feeling like I wasn't angry. Like I wasn't someone who was like, what he wrapped over the mineral sample and without proper citation or royal i wasn't like that but also i was like oh like why is pitchfork calling him emo but you know but they won't you know they won't cover whoever's new album you know but in time i think it's understandable why someone who's passionate about a genre gets that way but i think it's important for all of us just kind of like listen to the kids you know because if, if it's just a sign that your genre that you're passionate about is like important and meaningful, that it's connecting with a new generation who's going to, of course, do their own spin on it. You know, if genres don't do that, they just kind of wither and die out. Yeah. I mean, I definitely went through the same thing with peep. I almost word for word said what you just <laughs> kind of, yeah. Um, and honestly, like I'm, I'm like mad at myself because after he passed, I really saw how special he was and, I'm like, damn, I wish I got that right away. Um, but yeah, like, I feel the same. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I had a point in my life where I would have looked you straight in the eye and said, my chem is not an emo band. You know, they're like a, a pop punk band with eyeliner who later on wanted to be queen. Like, they're not an emo band. But like, I don't know. They definitely are. You know, <laughs> you know, like. And in 2006, but, they would have looked you in the eye and agreed with you. They hated it. They hated right. being queen. But then I was like chatting on the phone with Mikey Way and he's just like calling themselves an emo band, you know? It's yeah. kind of crazy because I never would have project predicted things to turn out that way. And I think over time it just it's just easier to not argue about it, you know, like <laughs> you know, like if it's just kind of like, oh, like when we were young is an emo nostalgia festival. Like you don't gotta start picking out like, well, no, not if this band's on it. You know, it's just easier to say that and then everybody's like i know what you mean and now we can move on yeah and that was a blast i got out to uh i was there for the first weekend 
And, um, I mean, seeing MCR and Paramore headline was sick. And also, one of my favorite memories with the book, like, so this was back in October of last year. So the book was still eight months away. And I am, but like some of the people I interviewed, they knew, I obviously knew about it. So like in the press area, like doing some interviews in between sets, um, chatting with some people from bands who I interviewed, like uh, Caraba from Dashboard and Anthony from Bayside, uh, Zach from Jimmy World, like them coming up and chatting to me and saying like, hey, like excited about the book. We were just talking about it. It, it was like one of the first times it kind of felt like a real thing. And, you know, thinking about it now, that just feels really special. That's amazing. Um, so something I want to ask is, like you said, you lived through a lot of this stuff in real time, especially living in New Jersey. Um, but what were some of the surprising things you learned when doing interviews for the book? Um, huh. It's one of these things where, so like, for instance, reading, like when I read American Hardcore, that book, um, I read that for the first time when I was writing my book and it's like, it's like, I knew obviously like hardcore back then was super violent, but from reading the book, I was like, Oh my God, this is so much more violent and scary than I ever thought it was from reading the specifics. So I like from my book, I always knew this stuff was huge and made a lot of money, but just learning about how much cash was being thrown around that was pretty wild. So like, I really got into it on the chapter on Warp Tour in 05. That was the year that Warped by far made the most money. It was the only year that they made money off ticket sales because they normally just made money off promotions. And, uh, and But this year, you know, places were getting completely overflowed. So there was one date MCR sold $60,000 worth of merchandise. That was in Detroit. They they did warp tour at the silver dome that year <laughs> just like a you know a huge football stadium and even bands like motion city soundtrack hawthorne heights uh they were selling thirty thousand dollars worth of merch in a day like one crazy quote uh josh the guitarist from motion city was telling me he was in new york walking around with a backpack with hundred twenty thousand dollars in cash wadded up inside it trying to deposit it somewhere because on warp tour it the venues are in the middle of nowhere so there's no banks to drop off this money so this dude who's probably never touched anything close to that much money in his life is just walking around with this hundred twenty thousand dollar back probably like the teller is going to think he's a drug dealer <laughs> like or they the people in bands really literally told me like they thought we were that but yeah the amount of cash being thrown around that that astounded me it definitely is nuts and like i mean even just thinking about how truly popular this stuff was and like i don't know like just like there's still like you know it's it is a form of like punk rock and you feel like they're regular people and you know them and like they're not rock stars except maybe like pete wentz um but uh just kidding um, but, um, you know, like it, it just, you're like, yeah, reading that is like, wow. Like these were like, I don't know. It just to put it into perspective of like, these people were on major labels. They were on television. There was like tons of money being thrown around. And it's just sometimes, especially after all these years, and then you go see these bands now and they're mostly a bit smaller. 
you kind of forget like how much of a gigantic thing it was. Yeah. And, and also I, like I, I learned even more detail about how so many of these bands came from very, you know, traditional punk, like actual punk backgrounds. Like I remember when I was like researching for stuff, seeing this flyer and one of Midtown's first shows was opening for you and I in the Thursday basement. I was like, like what the fuck? Like, what would it have been like to be at one of those shows? Cause I mean like, man, you know, and also another thing that I thought was really fun about doing this book was asking these people in bands questions about the other bands that they probably never been asked because so much of the press that we read from fallout boy or paramore or whoever it's tied to an album release whether it was you know 2006 or 2004 or whatever so typically they're not being asked about other bands unless it's like a really obvious connection so back in the early days especially of this book when the scene hadn't truly broken yet and everyone was like super connected not famous playing each other's shows some of the best stories and quotes came from like asking Chris Caraba about Midtown in New Jersey or asking Mikey Way about taking back Sunday on Long Island or, you know, even within Florida, asking Aaron from Underoath about Chris Caraba and Dashboard, who were you would think were kind of a generation ahead of uh, Underoath, but not really because they both started, actually Underoath started before Dashboard. So just hearing these stories like in real time in, in the 2020s, getting to ask these bands questions that you would always kind of wanted to ask if you were a huge nerd about the genre, that was really fun for me. Yeah. Th that was stuff was awesome to read for sure. Um, and I liked the times that people might be a little honest about like, we hated this, you know, and like, usually like they're like, but we warmed to it later or like we saw that what they were doing, but it's always nice to get that kind of honesty in there too. Yeah, I mean, with the with the panic at the disco stuff, that that was that's kind of at the core of it. Because I mean, when when Fever hit and when they came out, that was such like a everyone had to have like a hot take on Panic at the Disco. Most people who who were the loudest who you heard online, sometimes in person, but usually it was online. Like people hated them. What's what's funny is most of this stuff is all gone. But punknews.org, they're like the one site where all of their news posts from like 2004 are all still live. So you can go back and read like the comments section on a Fallout Boy Academy is post from 2004. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's brutal. Um, I've, I've definitely read like old reviews and then the comments are just like, you would have thought that everybody hated every band. Just based on right. the punk news comics. Things are so much nicer now, which I think is cool. But yeah, back then things were just meaner, you know? And I think some people kind of just rolled off their backs. But, you know, doing the book, I learned like how much of a mark it really did leave on people. Both the term emo and just all like the backlash and the negative reviews and the stuff they got from it. Whether it was from older punks or just people on the outside who's just like, we're always shitting on it. I definitely, I love the fat Mike quote you have. Yes. where He calls emo younger kids that don't have a very good sense of melody. 
Yo, I was so psyched to get Mike to chat for this. Uh, shout out to Kevin Lyman for connecting us. That one felt like it really brought the book together, getting the voice of someone from the previous generation who just was very skeptical, let's say, of the bands in my book. And, you know, still pretty much is. But, um, yeah, real real ones remember 2006 Warp Tour, Under Oath versus Fat Mike. What a what a story that one was. That was a hot one. That was definitely something I learned about reading the book. I had not I had not known about it. Yeah, I mean, I was, I mean, I knew Under Oath was a big thing, but none of my friends like listened to that stuff. Like I like from reading, you know, like AP, and from reading like having like Warped Tour comps. Like I knew all like the skate punk bands from the nineties. Uh, but I was just like, so by, by 06, I was just like, support the scene, like Jersey scene, like through and through. Like I was, you know, I was a senior in high school. It was just before I started to like get into indie rock. So I was just like, you know, had a car then and like all my friends had cars going to shows all the time. And like Under Oath, like were one of my favorite bands and it was just like, (laughs) fuck this like what's like what's this um um you know obviously now i can look back on it with more nuance and see how fat mike was not just being a dick but being critical of them because of uh them being uh being very publicly christian at a time when you know i mean christians are still doing this but when christians were being very unfriendly to the lgbtq community and you know there was there was definitely some meaning behind uh fat mike's words and then things kind of spun and went in a whole different direction (laughs) yeah as as happens with fat mike i think yeah (laughs) um are there any like i don't know if you don't have to answer this but are there any bands that back then like you would have shit on but now you're like you know what i see it i like them now hmm So first off, maybe not shit on, but I definitely was not a huge fan of the used and doing the book. I got, I got into their self-titled debut and I was like, this album rules. Like this album is polished and pop, but like the low end is so heavy and dirty. It's just that perfect balance. And Bert's voice in the album is just like incredible. Like I saw like back, back in the day I knew taste of ink and I didn't really know much of anything else. But going back and getting into like maybe memories, uh, blue and yellow, box of sharp objects, buried myself alive. It's like there's a handful. Also, the hidden track at the end of the album, which goes so hard. Uh, and then getting into their story of the use coming up as these like punk kids in this super dangerous Utah hardcore scene where things are just wild. And, you know, Bird being like homeless for a time and struggling with addiction and the other guys being kind of in this like goofy new metal rock band that didn't really know what direction they wanted to go in. And John Feldman discovering them. And like, it's like they went from no one caring about them, not even like indie labels, just like no one caring about them to them just being shopped to every major label. And then like a year later, Burke being on the Osbournes, like for, from the, from doing the book, I definitely developed 
a real appreciation for the used because as far as like you know mcr is a book on the band on the cover mcr seen by a lot of people as like the pinnacle of the scene in the black parade i think thursday is very rightfully credited as you know the band that helped make mcr but i think the other half of that is the use you know the use took them on pretty much every tour they did and from 2003 like into 2005 the use were a huge band on mtv before mcr was the use had a similar sound that they got you know mainstream radio program directors and shit like that to warm to and a lot of times it's like the first or second thing through the door that doesn't that kind of makes it through but gets kind of bloody and doesn't quite make it and it's the third thing that gets through or the third or the fourth thing that kind of is the thing that gets through the door and with mcr i kind of think yeah thursday for sure but the other half of that is the use and i think i'd really try to give them their shine in the book yeah, no, that's cool. I think like when you really learn a band's story, it can like, you know, just make you appreciate it a lot more than if you're just like, oh, like they had a song on the radio and I didn't really listen to it that much, you know? Yeah, I'm trying to think if there was anyone else I really didn't like who I came around to in the book. I mean, to be honest, I kind of started off as like, like a mall kid more than like a hardcore kid and got into hardcore more in like the 2010s and like now. So most of the stuff that I really liked as a kid was a lot of, not, not all of it, but a lot of the stuff I liked as a kid was the stuff that like older people made fun of. So I think like a lot of the stuff in the book is just me coming back around again to a band that I maybe was passionate about kind of deleted from my iTunes library and disowned and then uh, rediscovered. I think that's like a fairly natural progression, um, especially when like, I don't mean, maybe I don't know how you feel, but like those older people's voices, you start to internalize them, I think. And then they start to like, you're just, you know, you're like, oh, I, I can't like this. I need to be cool. Um, and then I think, you know, if you're lucky, because maybe not everybody, but I think, Ideally, you hit a point where you're like, fuck those voices. <laughs> like, I can listen to whatever the hell I want. And a lot of these bands made really good music. And Yeah. I mean, for me, <laughs> I wish I wish I had had that, like, coming around moment sooner. Because, like I said, I did college radio through 08, through, well, I started college in 2006. So I did, you know, I, I was music director of the station from 08 to 2010. But I did, you know, a show all four years and that was just such a pop in time for like pitchfork indie this is like you know dirty projectors bitta orca and grizzly bear becca timest and you know phoenix and the yeah yeah yeah's it's blitz lcd sound system there were just so many great indie albums being made at that time and it was kind of an easy way to transition from the more like emo stuff to just being like pitchfork pilled. Um, but also like, I'm not just saying, I'm not just saying this, but I remember like getting like the Thursday, uh, there was like Thursday did a split with this band Envy and putting that in rotation and being like, yeah, like I don't care what like the, the, the indie kids think, like I can still rep Thursday. Like Thursday is cool. <laughs> Maybe if it was like, you know, I'm sure we probably got, 
CDs from like Mayday Parade or whoever. Probably wouldn't have put those in. But um, no shots at Mayday Parade. But just like for me at that time, I was like, okay, there's some emo bands that I can get away with at college radio. And like, obviously Thursday, you know, I've always rode for Thursday. Yeah, no, I mean, hell yeah. But yeah, I mean, like super, super relatable. Like my freshman year of college was 2009. So yeah, it was like the Meriwether Post Pavilion Vecca to Miss year. And like that was everything. And that was what everybody liked. And especially being a freshman in college, you like super need to feel accepted. So I was like, not telling everybody I was also listening to Newfound Glory's new album, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> like, um, but I, you know, um, you come around and you start to be more honest with yourself, I think. And I agree that Thursday were always, when they put out No Devolution, I was like, oh, they're like making a record that matters now. And I feel so strongly that it is cool and I feel no shame. Um, and then they broke up. Yeah. Man, do you think we'll ever get new Thursday music? I hope, but I think that, especially with like Ellis Dunes and No Devotion and stuff, I think that they're not going to put out a record unless it really works for them. And and my guess is right now nothing has because, you know, they just keep touring and playing old stuff. And meanwhile, they're all making music, so... But I think if they ever like if it ever clicks, I think they're a band who could make an actually good record. So I I hope that that moment comes. (laughs) An actually good record. Well, you know, I mean, not every band, you know, I mean, they're going to be what they're going to be like. They're probably turning 25 as a band this year. Right. Like so. Um, Anyway, uh, let me ask you something else about the book. Um, You covered tons of bands and albums in the book. But if you touched on every single significant one, it would have been at least 5,000 pages. So what's a particular band or record that you would have liked to highlight, but it just had to be left out? Um, it would have been really interesting to get into Me Without You. They're not in the book at all, and not because I don't like them. But I hate to put them on the spot because there's a bunch like this. But... I mean... For, so for the narrative of the book, it's in a lot of ways the story of, well, obviously the story of Emo, but the two main characters who I looked at it as the narrative, you know, almost like a movie. The main characters were MCR and Fall Out Boy. And there's so many bands that kind of connect on that constellation somewhere. You know, in chapter two, I get the Get Up Kids in there because there was this like legendary show at this Elks Lodge in Jersey that the Get Up Kids came through on tour along with uh, At The Drive-In who had gotten at this juncture also because they were playing this Jersey show. Uh, it was the Through Being Cool release show with Saves the Day and uh, and Midtown, one of their first shows. So I had to kind of, with the narrative of this book, almost like a, a movie, kind of fit bands into the narrative somewhere because it would have been really jarring to just be like, okay, here's this chapter on this band from Pennsylvania who aren't really touring with any of the other bands in the book, but they're really cool, so here's a chapter on them. And then the next chapter, you know, we're back to uh, Fall Out Boy. But yeah, Me Without You is one of those bands where they could just be a whole other book in themselves because they really sounded like no one else. 
like we were saying, they were one of the bands that came out of this era that really transcended it. And to those who knew, like never stopped being cool. You know, it seems like they really broke up on their own terms and did it their own way. Um, got to interview them on one of the Paramore cruises, though. Probably one of the weirdest, in a good way, the weirdest interviews I've ever done, interviewing Me Without You in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. But yeah, it would have been cool to get some of the more like indie rock leaning emo in the book. But like like we were saying, if you, if you don't focus in, it kind of goes from a story to an encyclopedia. And the book, you know, it was a story, not an encyclopedia of emo. So did my best, did my best to include uh, what I could. But like I said, it really is the story of, um, of mainstream emo and the, you know, Paramore and Panic at the Disco, Taking Back Sunday, Jimmy World, Dashboard, they're big in there too. But through the, the bands being really, really there through the entire period of my book that it kept coming back to or fall boy at my chemical romance. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think there's no argument that those are like, you know, they took emo as far as it, well, maybe at this point Paramore, but like, um, I think it, in the, in the timeline of the book, those for sure were like, um, but I do love how you, you give a lot of space. Like you were saying with the get up kids, like you give space to some of these, like, really like legendary important underground bands that did like i love that you have a whole chapter on silent majority because it's like you can't talk about long island emo without their influence and you can't talk about mainstream emo without long island emo and yet still in 2023 i just feel like they've like kind of never got their due like i feel like even cap and jazz has more got their due than silent majority yeah and silent majority were like in a way like a New York city band, even though they weren't still like from like kind of a part of their long Island. So like really close to the city would get close to a thousand people at their shows on long Island at their peak. So it's, it's, yeah. I mean, I first, like, I didn't really know about them. I remember until, uh, it was when movie life got back together and I was interviewing them for billboard, um, Vinny and Brendan, and I was researching and like found like their influence. Oh, this band, a silent majority. And also like they like just, I think unprompted, they were just bringing them up a lot in the interview and listening to their album, life of the specter, the, the silent majority font. I was like, fuck, this album is so good. And also like in some of the lyrics, you just listen to them and you're like, Oh, taking back Sunday rips this off so hard. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, all those bands did. I love like where you highlight like their final show and how like every every famous Long Island band had at least one member there, and like it's just like yeah, you it's like you can visualize it. Like it's, I felt like I was there reading it. Like it was awesome. Thanks. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I really I wanted to like get like tell stories of things that people who are really into this music hadn't heard before because like so much of it needs to be told but like people know it already so you know you try to tell it from a unique point of view maybe get some different voices in the mix have a different angle but generally you know if you're talking about like paramore on the shira girl stage on warp tour like that story's been told a billion times you know 
so with the yeah, silent majority within chapter three kind of introducing the long island scene that felt really cool and like interviewing tommy the singer of silent majority was really rewarding i'm so glad that he would he was down for an interview like this because i'm sure he doesn't do many interviews like he was just like chatting with me after a day of work you know and also which i kind of didn't even really know when i did the interview but tommy wound up working at merch direct who he, he was a designer for so many of these shirts that wound up being sold at Hot Topic that were just the shirts that probably you and I and so many other kids bought, just saw a thousand times on that Hot Topic t-shirt wall because Tommy just came up in the Long Island scene. Aside from being the singer of the band, he was like a graffiti artist who also, you know, could draw, could paint. So he just got doing band merch. So throughout the book, he is also a voice after Silent Majority breaks up. He's a voice later on in the book talking about all these t-shirts for like taking back Sunday that he's designing. Yeah. It's wild too. Just like how many of like the talking heads in the book are just like scenesters from the new Brunswick basement scene or the long Island, like hardcore scene that are now just like major players in the music world and have been for decades. Yeah. I mean, people like, um, people like Paul Hanley who works for French kiss, who was like, part of the Brunswick basement scene back in the day. Um, uh, Joanna Angel, who's a pretty famous adult film star, who has some of my favorite quotes in the book. Like this, this story about like a pseudo date that she went on with Jeff Rickley to a, an Elliot Smith show right before Thursday started. Um, I didn't get to interview him, but PJ Ransone, who played Ziggy on The Wire, is a guy. Is the guy passed out on the back cover of uh, Through Being Cool on like the Broken Futon? He was around like Sarah Lewidim, who was a big player in Meet Me in the Bathroom. Uh, she was a DJ, had like a label that actually put out some Eagle bands. Sarah Lewidim, Ultra Girl, probably a lot of people listening to this podcast know who she is. Uh, her her emo past was definitely not nearly as told as her strokes garage rock past uh she's one of us uh select club of people who were in both meet me in the bathroom and my book and uh sarah has i think some of the best quotes in the whole thing yeah no i mean like i feel like even back like i i'm a little bit too young to have like experienced ultra girl in real time but i've like heard the stories and hearing how she just like you know, was fully on the strokes thing, but also was like my chemical romance or the next Nirvana or something. I'm like, man, like she was doing back then what like I wish so many more people were doing. Like, so yeah, she seems yeah. awesome. Yeah, she really saw both sides of it, you know, how it all fit together. Yeah. And also she was one of several people who stressed to me how much all these emo bands wanted to be the strokes in Interpol. Yeah, I mean, I, I like, Again, like it comes up with just like it's I feel like it's hard. And then, you know, you also talk too about just like I think you talk about it um, unless I'm in my head mixing up different things I've read. But like this stuff popped off in the suburbs and the strokes and stuff popped off in the city. And that is like a major factor, I think, as far as coolness and the perception of coolness. Yeah, I mean, well, you can't change where you're from can't change where you're born and you're just naturally going to be a product of your surroundings as will the music you make. And it's funny because like I, like I said, I started high school in 02. So that was like when 
strokes is this it came out and like i wasn't like super dialed in right away you know i wasn't reading like cobra snake if that even existed in that year you know in 2002 so i didn't i wasn't like you know on top of everything but you know i was you know starting i was subscribing to magazines like obviously alternative press but also blender was a big one back then uh spin a little bit they my library always had rolling stones whenever i was like in the like the library at school killing time i would read rolling stone and it's like i could tell bands like the strokes and the yeah yeahs were a thing but they felt like they were a thing mostly in magazines <laughs> whereas like at the lunch table or you know just out in the world chatting with kids my age in jersey it just even up even not obviously like Fall Out Boy and MCR and Paramore were huge. I mean, what we we're talking about is a little bit before Paramore, but in this early two thousands era, even a band like like a really hyped Jersey band like Armor for Sleep or Senses Fail, like those bands in my like like fifteen year old head just seems so much bigger than like the New York stuff because that's what all the people around me were passionate about. Like it was this like looking back, it was it's so wild because going to a high school in Jersey back then, it wasn't just like punks or like emo kids. Like I remember like like preppy kids listening to like Under Oath and Matchbook Romance. It was just so just of the youth growing up there then. And yeah, it's I just got kind of a funny, distorted version, like this world in New Jersey where it's like, oh yeah, like senses fail and, and armor for sleep and hidden in plain view, just like massive ban. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I know what you mean. And like, uh, like one of the things I've talked about in the past is like, I'm a little bit younger than you. And so I kind of got into the strokes, Interpol, France Ferdinand and stuff from like MTV. Mm -hmm. Um, and and then like when I got a little older and I was like, wait, like you're telling me those are the indie bands and like armor for sleep is corny. I'm like, those are television bands. Like <laughs> those are like mainstream rock bands. Like, like how, how are they the cool ones? Like, not I like them. I'm not, I'm not at all. Like I was always a fan, but I thought that was like the mainstream rock that I liked and armor for sleep was like the underground rock that I liked. So it got weird when I was like, then, you know, some internet, like, you know, like what is Max Bemis saying? Admit it, like the unspoken panel of like you know, like they're telling me like, oh, Armor for Sleep is like that's corny, fucking emo, like fake punk bullshit. And I'm like, what? Like, and then Armor for Sleep went and wrote a song about Williamsburg, and they tied it all together. There you go, full circle. <laughs> that didn't um, make it in there. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know that song. Yeah, yeah. So why do you think? that emo was able to break into the mainstream when it did and could it ever happen again? Um, <laughs> I'll answer the second part first. Cause I, I think about this stuff a lot and <laughs> in a way, I, in a way I feel like it might be already in the mainstream in another, like, I don't know, like we of course say the word wave people like us, but I feel like in the minds of like a 14 year old now emo is back in the mainstream again. And 
it might be hard for someone my age to really wrap their head around because I think we get used to trends and things resurfacing in familiar ways after a certain amount of time. And the trends, sometimes the, the deck gets shuffled and trends come back in different ways. So basically like in the mid 2000s, like we were saying, punks wouldn't call MCR emo or they wouldn't call Paramore emo. It was just, you know, it was rock music or it was pop or whatever. And it was like these young kids or like people from England who were calling it emo and people felt like the term was getting like bastardized. But now everyone's sort of like come around and they're like, yeah, you're right. No. And man, it's like, I'm not really a fan. I mean, I'm not really a fan of Machine Gun Kelly's music or the very many different iterations of Machine Gun Kelly, you know, like young blood or something. But part of me does wonder some of that stuff. I like not Machine Gun Kelly too much specifically, but there's, there's, there's some stuff in that, in that general, like Travis Barker, John Feldman world that I can get down with. But part of me wonders like, is that just the new version of like major label pop stuff that older people don't think is emo, but like 10 years from now, everyone's just like, Oh, this is, this is emo where like maybe emo did go back underground in the 2010s and it'll get looked on in the 2020s as being mainstream again. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've like reckoned with that exact like thought process, <laughs> like where I'm just like, wait, like, if I'm saying like, you know, young blood is like just whatever bullshit, like, am I doing the same thing that the people who acted like my chem didn't exist did? Like probably, you know, like, um, but at the same time to use like that armor for sleep thing as a parallel, like I think what we meet, we meaning like people who write about music on the internet that are not teenagers anymore. I think what we forget is like, kids who are getting into music and having their passionate moment now, like it's not like whoever is like really popular that we think is leading the trend. You know what I mean? Like if you go, like if you go see like origami angel, you're going to see 700 kids with X's on their hands, losing their fucking minds. I don't think they care about like who got best new music this week. You know what I mean? Like, and I think that we might see like, when they're 25, they're going to be like origami angels, the most important band of all time. And I don't know, but. Yeah, that's cool. Like, are you, do you think there's bands now who are more of like in the traditional, like punk band with guitars mold, not so much the pop stuff like now who you think could be like that band? Like actually like my chem big or not, like not, Thursday not big, not that big, but like, thought of in 10 years in that sort of like a special space, the way, you know, people like us think about this stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think like just off the top of my head, I think origami angel and pool kids for sure. Um, I think you already really see it. Um, j even just like not exactly emo, but I kind of feel it with pink shift. Um, cool. I kind of feel it with hot mulligan. I think there's definitely like a group of bands, um, I mean, it's just like, you know, history repeats itself. And it's like, I remember 10 years ago going to see modern baseball and being like, whoa, like there's teenagers here reacting the way I reacted to taking back Sunday. 
you know, and then now fast forward 10 years, you go see pool kids and it's like, whoa, they're reacting to this the way I saw people react to modern baseball and the way I reacted to taking it. You know what I mean? Like, so I, yeah, I think that they're out there for sure. Yeah, that's cool. Um, you know, like pink shift has been getting on some cool tours lately. They were just at, uh, adjacent fest where we both were last weekend. Trying to think if there's anyone else. Pool kids makes a lot of sense. I really liked their most recent album. I think that band Sweet Pill, they're like on the way. Have you heard them? Yeah. Yeah. I could I could see like next record for them really hitting. And I mean, I think if I'm not mistaken that Haley Williams has like co-signed them. So mm-hmm. gotta help, I'm sure. The the Haley co-sign help the pool kids. Yep. Yeah, I mean, she's like uh, you you know her podcast, right? Like everything is emo. Yeah. Yeah. Super like relevant to this conversation. I mean, I love that she is just basically like arguing about emo is stupid because everything's emo and like block parties emo. And I'm like, yeah, tell people block parties emo. Totally. <laughs> um, so one of the things I also really liked in your book was uh, I think it was Adam from the Academy is who talked about around 2006, there being this big clash of like, between the early 2000s emo and then everything that was going to come after that. That is like really cool to read about for me because I definitely pinpoint 06 as like, and I don't really want to spend time talking about like devil and God and stuff, but like, I, I think that also like it signaled that sea change a bit. And like you saw bands fall on one side or the other. I thought it was cool that you touched on that. Yeah. I mean, also Max Bemis in, I think a similar part of the book, was just like yeah the dividing line was fallout boy the bands who came after fallout boy were like okay it's cool let's go with like the pop you know we, we came from pop punk or hardcore and we can sprinkle that in but we can go we can go pop because fallout boy did it it's cool whereas the bands who were before fallout boy you know like your your get up kids is of the world a lot of like other vagrant bands were more like oh we got to go make some indie rock um yeah I feel like both Panic and, yeah, the first Panic record in 05, Fever, and Fall Out Boy in general, just the way Pete embraced being a celebrity and being friends with Jay-Z and all that came with it, you basically went into either side. And that gets to be how you have the scene almost totally splintering from its roots, but then also the scene just going back to basics with the kids who were just like, no, that they probably just felt like, oh, that just feels so unattainable. So let's just start a band that sounds like American football or something. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I also really love that you have a whole chapter on Pretty Odd because, one, that album is just wild that it exists. And I feel like they're, like, a little bit caught between, like, what we're talking, like, because they are the so emblematic of following the Fall Out Boy route. And then they were like, oh, we smoke weed now and we made a Beatles record. Like, so I feel like they kind of ended up like trying to be cool, trying to be indie. Yeah. And for a minute, it looked like it was going to work because like nine in the afternoon at first felt like a hit song. Like I remember it being on MTV and stuff. I remember like seeing the video of them like marching around, but the album pretty much had no traction and it fell off and not long after uh, John Walker and Ryan Ross left the band. And uh, it's funny. I, I never 
liked the album too much. I think Nine in the Afternoon is a nice song. There's some, I mean, you know, like Ryan sings on the album lead, which he didn't do much in Panic. That's cool. For me, it's kind of like, uh, if I want to listen to that, I'll listen to the Beatles or the Zombies if I really want that sound. But, um, yeah, like talking to the members of the band, talking to Rob Mathis, who produced the album, was interesting. Jonathan Daniel, who managed basically like all those Decadence bands. Um, yeah. On the topic of Panic and Pretty Odd in particular, I really enjoyed the opportunity to highlight Ryan Ross in the book because he... You, Panic became something totally different, but in the early days of Panic, when, you know, when they were this thing that people couldn't stop talking about, you know, the I Write Sins days, Brendan was singing the words, but Ryan Ross wrote pretty much all of those vocals, wrote all those lyrics, and they were about some pretty heavy topics, and Ryan was, like, in a lot of ways, you know, the machine behind that band, and I think to a certain faction of Panic, fans that's well known the panic fans who in any sort of panic at the disco post will just be like ah ryan ross ah, ah, don't forget ryan ross um but i think a lot of people probably picking up the book won't really be like familiar with that so yeah ryan ross pretty important guy and uh i definitely enjoy some panic here and there there's there's at least one or two songs on every one of their albums i can get behind but i revisited fever a lot in writing the book and that album still feels really special. That feels like a classic to me. I definitely agree with that. Um, yeah, I'm one of those big Ryan Ross fans. Okay. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad he got his uh, flowers in the book because, like, I I don't know. It, it, like, it became Brendan's solo project. They became, like, straight-up pop music. I mean, you know, I kind of dig high hopes for what it is. I don't think it has anything to do with emo or hardcore. Um not that Pretty Odd does, but I definitely, I feel like Ryan was the, he's like the nerd in the band that I relate to. And Brendan's like okay. the star that I don't, you know? <laughs> like, so, okay. yeah. I think maybe um, I relate to Spencer, who's the one who just works a desk job now. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> who, works for, who works for Crush Music. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and is just yeah. like talking to me like, a guy who talks on zoom all day when I'm on like my 80th zoom interview for the book. <laughs> That's funny. You ever listen to, uh, uh, that band, the young veins was like, a, a couple Ryan. Times. yeah, not so good, honestly, but I wanted, I, I tried rooting for him. Mm. Yeah. So, I, like, I, I remember getting both, uh, the Young Veins, I think they just did an EP. I don't even know if they did a full length. But when I was at the radio station at, at TCNJ, I remember getting pretty odd. Like, we didn't play it, but I remember, like, listening to the advance and being like, huh, Panic at the Disco. Also, it came out three or, th yeah, three years after uh, Fever, which for back then, I mean, when you're a band that appeals to young people, three years, like, someone who was... Like a, like a sophomore when Fever came out. They were in college by the time the sophomore album dropped. So like that also probably had to do why uh, why Pretty Odd wasn't the album that they had hoped. Yeah, and they were so young too. Like it makes sense. I mean, like I'm, I'm looking this up so I don't get it wrong, but like Ryan Russ was 
born in 1986. So he would have been like 19 on the first record and 22 on the second. Like, yeah, that's hugely different places in your life, you know? Yeah. And also the age of these people is something that's, you know, you took it for granted back then because every band in the scene was like, you would read like a 20 something person write about these bands and they're like, and they're so young, they're still in high school. As another high schooler, I just kind of took it for granted. But going back and writing a book on this stuff, I really got to think about like, man, if I was 18 years old and went from just like playing in a band with my friends to other friends and was all of a sudden getting these people way older than me telling me about like, oh, you can be on MTV and you can make this much money and sell all these records. I don't know what effect that would have had on me, but I'm sure it would have fucked with my head so much. And like, I don't know how I would have turned out. And, you know, a good amount of people in these bands were very forthcoming about what it was like for them to have just gone through a whirlwind of emotions attached to fame and, drugs which they often used to just deal with the shit they were going through back then and you know a lot of that was such an important part of the story that couldn't really be overlooked yeah i mean for sure i've definitely spent a lot of time thinking about that too like i have no idea what it would feel like to be 18 19 years old and you go from like local shows at vfw halls to like you're on mtv you're playing to thousands of people at warp tour like it seems like nearly impossible to imagine. Yeah. And like, if you're the sort of person who's prone to anxiety, that would probably get heightened. Or if you're like the sort of creative person who gets kind of gassed up when you get a little bit of attention, imagine what it would feel like to have one huge album that people love. And then you put out a second album when you're still like 20 and people hate that album. And they're hating it publicly all over the internet and to your face even. Like, what would that do to you? Like, you know, I think it's sometimes it's easy to just take shots at famous people, which can be fun and funny. But talking to them in real time so many years later, you just see like, yeah, this roller coaster really fucked with people. And a lot of it, I think, was unique to that era, like because the internet was so new. And because bands from these like VFW hall shows weren't used to getting that kind of acclaim. And in some ways they can't again, because MTV is nowhere as big as it, as it it will never be as big as it was again. No one will ever sell albums again. Like they were doing in 2003, you know? So in some ways, like the era could never uh, happen again. And in a lot of ways it's a bummer because I want to see creative people make money off their art, make a living off their art, but God, not get their heads fucked within the way that some people were. Yeah. And I mean, not to like go down a really dark path, but like, you know, like, I mean, if we're talking about little peep, like, you know, I mean, it's, yeah. Yeah. Um, getting a wicked phase Adam McElwee to chat for the book felt really, really special. Um, I really value the quotes that that are in the epilogue of the book because I don't go deep on Lil Peep and Goth Boy Click, but they felt really important to mention in talking about where emo went after the years of my book. And 
I really wanted the book to be the sort of thing that 10 years from now could still feel like, oh, this is the authoritative book. Like this doesn't feel dated. So I was really kind of picky with what stuff from the 2010s and beyond that I included. And one of the things I just felt like so important was what started with Adam and Goth Boy Click, you know, him leaving Tiger's Jaw and making music that's kind of emo, but to beats and like, the quotes at him and also a couple journalists, uh, Marianne Eloise and Hannah Ewins, who interviewed Peep around that time. Um, you know, also Will Yip, who's in that section of the book. Yeah, their their contributions, like I really appreciate them. Yeah, for sure. No, it's it's definitely an awesome epilogue. Um, and I think, you know, I think you picked good. I mean, even like I remember the first time I heard like Lucid Dreams by Juice World on the radio in like an Uber. Um, which is the only time I really hear radio. <laughs> um, mm. I was like, whoa, like there's a emo song playing, <laughs> you know, like, and so, yeah, that probably is the most popular emo song of the last like seven years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And talking about where, you now this discussion you, when you asked about like, could emo get that big again, like in the 2020s, it feels like in a lot of ways it did have one of those moments, you know, it's just like, it's so sad that, you know, some of the stars weren't able to, to come out on the other end. Yeah, for sure. And on that note, uh, what do you make of all like the nostalgia for this era that we're going through? Like we kind of touched on when you, we were young and like emo night, the emo's not dead cruise. Uh, I mean, the my chem tour was like the, biggest one of the biggest rock tours of the last few years um there's clearly a lot of interest right now in the timing is great for the book too so i guess what are your thoughts on all of this stuff just having this like nostalgia moment i guess i mean i'm just really trying to enjoy it in the moment you know being at adjacent fest last weekend and you know seeing senses fail in early November and Thursday and Paramore, especially, you know, a, a bigger band like Paramore and also MCR when I was at their shows and seeing the crowd and so much of it is like kids who were teenagers. It's like, there's no way these people were around when the band was first big. Like these people reconnected with stuff that was big when I was a teenager. And it, it really does feel meaningful. Like, like 18 year old me couldn't have really processed this, but it feels really meaningful when kids who are also passionate about pop culture and passionate about music and you like, kind of like your kind of music when they resonate with the shit that you were into when you were a kid. Um, so with all the nostalgia stuff, yeah, a lot of it can get corny. Uh, man, like, like when people like, I always thought people saying people putting plural on emo and calling themselves emos. That was just kind of like a no go for me. Even when I was a kid, like we would joke and call ourselves emo kids, but like scene kids was always cooler, but I don't know. I feel like <laughs> the adult emos, the elder emos, it's so corny, but you know, I'm not going to be the one to, to really hate on it. <laughs> if you're, if you're, if you're help, helping these people 
not just the MCRs and the Paramours, but helping like bands of all shapes and sizes make a living and go tour and sell merch and share their stuff at this, at this juncture. I think that's cool. And you know, who knows how long this, this, this resurgence will last. Like I was saying before, there's all these patterns with pop culture where I think we expect like, okay, this amount of years later, the nostalgia cycle kicks in and then the nostalgia cycle ends, but you know, Maybe this nostalgia cycle just keeps going on. I mean, like, look at how long people have been, like, loving Nirvana as teenagers, you know? So, who knows? I'm just trying to be in the moment with all the stuff. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because, like, I... It does feel surreal to me when I see somebody, like, into my chem who would have been, like, a child when three cheers came out but i'm like well i'm into nevermind and i was born that year and it doesn't feel weird at all so yeah like maybe maybe ultra girl was right they're the new nirvana yeah it's so funny how much that phrase got thrown around yeah and now (laughs) i feel like if you talk to like just average teenagers so many of them would call nirvana an emo band yeah i have not experienced that but that's wild yeah, I, <laughs> I feel like to a lot of people, like emo just means like rock music that's not the Beatles or like rock music that's not classic rock or rock music that's kind of angsty in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maybe that's why I like Nirvana so much. <laughs> um, so I also wanted to ask you... Um, Obviously, when you do a book like this, you have to pick a timeline, but obviously any movement in like pop culture history, music history, it's never exactly this year to that year. So what made you say 99 to 08? Yeah, so actually originally when I was in the proposal phase, it was, I believe it was 01 to 08. And I was still talking about a lot of the late 90s stuff, but it was in like a, it was the first section and I think I was calling it a prologue. But then it was like, oh, this prologue has six chapters. Like, why, why is this a prologue? And there was so much good stuff in there. And as far as the timeline goes, I think the first albums that really hinted that emo could be a mainstream thing came out in 99. They were uh, Through Being Cool and uh, Get Up Kids, Something to Write Home About. I can't say that for sure because I was uh, 10 in 1999. So for the early, early stuff in the book, I just really tried to do my due diligence and spent a lot of time talking to people who were older than me and in the scene them. But from all the stuff I've read and over the years, it really does feel like those two albums were like the ones that made it poppy enough, cute enough, that people heard the choruses and they were like, okay, yeah, this could move. So even though there was like, there there are definitely other emo bands who were, you know, that had some hype for sure, prior to 99. But for the most part, in a way that made sense for putting it together for a narrative, 99 felt like, that year it's like fascinating how like i agree with you through being cool and something right home about are like arguably the first two like let's say third wave emo albums 
it's funny how that exact year is like clarity in American football self-titled, which is like mm-hmm. maybe the last two second wave emo out, you know, it's like in, in the same, like, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. It's like, cause I always wonder where the waves end and begin. Cause like those bands straddle. Well, I, I would think of like American football, definitely second wave, even though like they're at the tail end of the nineties. Whereas like, I would think of get up kids, maybe more as, or at least part of third wave or Jimmy world also. And they actually started way earlier. Um, but yeah, I guess you could say that American football is another one of those bands that would have been really cool to get in the book, but even though they're so important, they weren't, I mean, they weren't part of the scene that I did the book on for sure. And even though like I get into Chicago a lot with fallout boy, like the whole shirt champagne Urbana scene, really seemed like it was something different from the hardcore scene that fallout boy came from. Um, but, um, actually I do have something in the works on a uh, second wave emo, another oral history that will be dropping in a couple weeks, maybe by the time you post this. So stay tuned for that. But, uh, <laughs> it's not an American football, but something similar, but, um, yeah. Clarity, talking about 99, yeah, Clarity, I do get in the book, kind of as a prelude to Bleed, Bleed American, can forget Clarity with 1999 as well. Yeah, Jimmy Eat is an interesting one, because it's like, I feel like Clarity is arguably the best second wave emo album, and then Bleed American is like, arguably the big bang of third wave emo, so, same band. Yeah, and with ending the, the timeline of the book, 2008 felt like the end of an era. The neatest way to wrap it up was Fall Out Boy putting out Foley I Do. It's hyped up a lot because it's the next Fall Out Boy album. They're in their pop phase, but it's kind of a flop. A few months in, it definitely seems like a flop. They're not getting good reception on their tour. You know, the last scene of the book before the epilogue is, well, I won't spoil it, but I think it's something that very much sums up uh, the end of mainstream emo. And, um, you know, at the time, MCR was kind of at odds with how to follow Black Parade. They kind of soft launched this garage rock album that was like this back to basics stooges influence project that wasn't going to be a concept album but then they pulled away and wound up doing danger days which i mentioned in the book and that could be another book in, in and of itself but danger days feels part of something else later on and so even though some of these bands from the book wound up doing interesting things later on beyond 08 08 really felt like the moment where emo as just a big pop culture signifier started where the scene where all that started to wane in mainstream exposure. Yeah. I think that makes sense. So, uh, anything else you feel like you want to add about the book? Um, I mean, just want to thank like just all really all the people who interviewed for me. Um, like it just means so much that, you know, after after so many years of writing for publications, doing something on your own, you really get what it's like where you're like, oh, wow, this person is talking to me, not because like a publicist or manager put them in touch with Billboard or something like, oh, this person is actually just like giving their time to chat for two hours about tours they went on in 2003. Um, and yeah, there were so many great 
uh, subjects in the book. And even outside of the big famous people, a few just come to mind as really, really open people and people who not only had great memories, but just can look back on their time in the spotlight with a lot of reflection and putting things into context with some great stories. And um, for that, Adam Siska, bass player from the Academy is comes to mind. Um, Buddy Nielsen from Census Fail is hilarious throughout the book. Aaron Gillespie from Under Oath. Those people, and also Anthony Ranieri from Bayside. Bayside was a band who, I fucking love Bayside. They were one of the bands where I was just like, yo, I'm getting a chance to just like write my own book on emo and kind of can call the shots. I'm going to put Bayside in there a lot. Um, those people are all great interviews. It was hard to not have them in the book even more. So some of the bands that I think kind of fall between the cracks of stuff that was really popular in a pop way or stuff that kind of got remembered in an underground way, these kind of in-between bands that put out like gold records, but still kind of don't get talked about enough, you know, bands like Senses Fail, Under Oath, getting them some shine in the book was really fun. Awesome. Well, this has been a blast. Thanks so much, Chris. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Yeah, psyched to be on the podcast. Yeah, psyched to have you. Hey, thanks so much to Chris. Thanks again for listening. Go pick up Chris's book, Where Are Your Boys Tonight? The Oral History of Emo's Mainstream Explosion, 1999-2008, out now on HarperCollins. And if you like what you heard, please give us a good review, rate, subscribe, tell your friends about us. It's all little stuff and it really goes a long way and we really appreciate it so much. Thanks so much. See you next time.